Welcome to Drip Lazy Podcast, number 230, big show today. Mr. Ryan Price will be talking with me about feature flags. Another original Drip Lazy Podcast contributor, Andrew Riley, is back to go old school with me. We'll cover some Drupal news as well as some picks of the week, and we'll even talk about bikes. And if that wasn't enough, another episode of The Change Notice with Chris Weber. Let's get going. Hey, Andrew, good to have you back on the podcast. How are you? It's good to be back. I kind of forgot what I was doing, but I don't know, maybe it's like riding a bicycle. Yeah, I don't even want to look back and see how long it's been since you were on, because I'm afraid, I mean, it's definitely a different year. Yeah, I'm afraid if an absence was a child, it could be a toddler now. It could be, yeah, maybe terrible twos. Yep. So I figured um, we'd get you on just to talk about kind of almost like old school. We've got some news items and we'll do some module picks and, you know, it's kind of an old school podcast the way we started it out. Nice. Retro. Yeah. Retro. All right. So I got a bunch of stories picked out and you and I both have some modules picked out. So we're just going to, you know, we're just going to, you know, knock them out. So here we go. First one. Um, with the upcoming release of Drupal 9, mm-hmm. there is some new Drupal branding. Yes. Specifically a new logo. It's still a drop, but anyone who's been to Drupal.org in the past couple of weeks probably has noticed it's in the header of the website. It's actually the little favicon now. Um, it's kind of a stylized drop. Yeah. And uh, yeah, what do you think? I actually really like it. Um, it's somehow more simple and more complex or grown up at the same time, I should say. And if you look close enough, it's kind of like the FedEx logo that has the little arrow in it. It's kind of a drop inside of a drop inside of a drop. There's three drops that I count. Oh yeah. I saw two of them, but now that I'm staring right at it and you say it, there are three drops, aren't there? Yeah. Wow. Or at least that's what I see. Yeah. I was going to go with, it's definitely more mature, um, which makes sense because Drupal is now what, 15, 20 years old, something, whatever it is. It's old. It's, you know, it's close to adulthood. Wow. So it's going to close down its MySpace page? It's about time, right? Yeah. You know, I'm kind of tired of going to it and hearing the music. Like. <laughs> so yeah, so there's a blog post about it and I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but for me, I, like, I love consistency, you know, cross branding. Yeah. And this, it's actually reminiscent of the DrupalCon logo as well, which, which I like. It's not exactly the same. It's not, well, the same. But it's that type of a little bit more sophisticated. Maybe maybe sophisticated is the word that for me resonates the most with the new logo. Well, and it works well with the the I don't know what you call it, but like the quilted hexagon of the DrupalCon logo. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes. Yep. 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 I actually like, and I've always liked logos that for some reason that remind me of stained glass. Yeah, I think that's a a universal thing, or at least I do it. So everyone must. Yeah, for some reason, it's, I don't know, it just it, it makes it look timeless and elegant. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of the new logo, and we'll, we'll be seeing it a lot, I'm sure. Definitely. All right. Story number two, the annual Drupal Local Development Survey, um, put together by Chris Urban and Jeff Geerling, as they have been doing for a few years. I think this might be the third year, perhaps, that they're doing it. Um, but always interesting results, um, and I love the blog post. I'll have I'll, I'll link to it in the uh, in the show notes. Um, it's on Jeff's uh, blog, 
and it's not overly complex. It's just nice and simple. Here are the results. Here's what people are using for local development. Easy to read graphs. You don't even have to read the words. What I, they're like all gray in my in my eyeballs. I go right to the <laughs> graphs. Um, so it looks like you know about half the respondents were from the Americas and the other half from the rest of the world. And have you looked at the blog post, Andrew? I'm just looking oh, at stop. it now. Oh, okay. I've, I've stopped. You, did, I was going to have you get. Did you look at the local development environments graph yet? Yes, but only I only saw the first one, which I would not have guessed. Uh, but I did not look at any others. All right. So Lando's uh, number one. Yep. Um, with uh, the 2020 result is 169. Um, and I'm looking for what is the total. The total is, I'm going to estimate here, let's say 500, maybe about 600 responses. Um, it's, I'm sure if I read, which please, if I read, I'd get the exact number. But out of about 600 responses, 169 people say they're using Lando as their local development environment of choice. What would you have guessed would be number one? Uh, well, that's the part that astounds me because, you know, in social media and all, I hear about DDEV quite a bit. So I figured that would probably be first, um, but apparently it's not representative of the actual results. Yeah, DDEV is uh, fourth with 91, so about one-sixth of the uh, of the total. Uh, the top four are all Docker-based. So the top four are Lando and then just Docker. So meaning, you know, kind of homegrown. Build your own. uh, Build your own Docker um, uh, compose file type of thing. Uh, Doxel, another another great, you know, tool, very similar to Lando and DDEV, um, followed by uh, DDEV. So those are the top four. So that leaves us with in no particular order. In no particular order, we have things like MAMP, Drupal VM. We have kind of roll your own. Um, we have um, uh, Dev Desktop and Zamp and WAMP and those tools. So, what would you think after those four? After those four Docker-based solutions, what would you think would be the next most popular in 2020? Ooh, that's a tough one. I know, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, I would say probably like MAMP class, like you know, just install, install your own Apache type deal. So I'm going to guess that that falls into the homebrew category. Okay. Which is not next. Now, I, I was thinking about this after I looked at this graph a few days ago. And who you have to kind of think who would be most likely to know about this survey and fill out this survey. I would say community members. Well, I would say it's people who do Drupal every day, like professional Drupal developers, as opposed to you know, hobbyists or people who use Drupal, but it's not like the primary focus of their job or it's not, it's not where they spend 90% of their time. Mm-hmm. So convenience is a factor you're saying versus just getting in there and editing config files. And stuff. I wouldn't say convenience. I would say it's more of just people who follow, like um, who, who are just more into it. I don't know how else to say it, right? Who are just more invested in having good tools. Okay. Right. So with that line of thinking um, and that, you know, maybe it's because I, I saw the graph and I thought about it instead of the other way around. MAMP, WAMP, ZAMP, none of those appear in the top uh, nine. Wow. If we had done this, uh, I don't know, five, seven years ago, it would be like number one. Well, we wouldn't have any of the Docker based solutions, but yeah, um, I mean, that would be king. 
the the one that's close the thing that's uh, does appear that's closest is in sixth place which is aqua dev desktop which i'm confounded those must be all drupal 7 folks are still doing drupal 7 because i i don't understand how people could use aqua dev desktop with drupal 8 yeah i think it got a, a early foothold as an all-in-one package back in the seven days like you said back in the 70s yeah yeah and star wars came out exactly so, uh, yeah, so number five, let me just round out the top nine. Number five was Drupal VM, which is a tool that is, you know, maintained by the author of the blog, Jeff Gearling. Is that the Vagrant-based one, Drupal VM? Um, well, it's, it's, um, it's VirtualBox, Vagrant. Um, I think Ansible is involved as well. Okay, so it's a full VM. Gotcha. It's a full VM, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not saying there's any relation between the fact that Jeff maintains that and the blog post. I'm, I'm just... Speaking of which, Jeff has just been everywhere. Like I had turned somewhere and then boom, Jeff just pops up. He's been everywhere lately. Well, he's doing a live, like he, like every, I guess it's every week he puts out a, a YouTube video of him migrating his site from Drupal 7 to Drupal 8. Well, he's been doing that. He's also got some like Raspberry Pi board where he's running like seven Raspberry Pis in parallel. He's been doing a yeah. YouTube series on that. Yeah. He's a, uh, he's a, I don't know, maybe he doesn't need sleep. Yeah, maybe not. So anyway, okay. So let me let me just wrap up this. Uh, Lando, Docker, Doxel, DDev, Drupal VM, Aqua Dev Desktop. Then rounding out the top nine, Vagrant, and then Homebrew, which I'm assuming again, if I read it, probably know for sure. Homebrew is kind of roll your own, and then Aqua BLT, which was very surprising because that I believe just uses the built-in web server that comes with PHP by default. What is BLT? Acquia build, load, and test is what BLT stands for, I believe. Oh, I haven't even tried that one yet. Yeah, it's kind of like a distribution that, and I haven't used it. I've read about it a few times. Um, I, I, you know, I got to find some time. I want to dig into it a bit more. But I believe what it does is it provides a really good uh, structure for like a developer workflow, a multi-branch developer workflow. Okay. So it's an all-in-one type thing. Um, okay, so I'm just going to we'll talk about one more um, of these graphs. There's, I mean, there's a few more here, but one more that I, that I really like is uh, IDEs, Code Development Tools. Okay, I've got a couple good guesses here. Yeah, okay, well, good. Give me, the, give me your guesses. So first is going to be PHP Storm, and second is going to be VS, VS Code. You're absolutely right. And I was, you know, PHP Storm's kind of a no-brainer. I was actually really surprised that VS Code was in second. Although I have been seeing a lot more people using it lately, um, and it has, you know, obviously come a long way. It has. I had no idea, or, or no, I would have never in a million years guessed that it was the second most popular development tool. I only know just because when everyone needs to set up X debug, it's well documented for PHP Storm, but when it's VS Code, everyone has a problem. So you always see that in chat at work, like, how do I set up VS Code uh, X debug? How about third? What's after those two? Ooh, uh... That's a tough one. I'm guessing either Atom or Sublime. Sublime is next. Atom is fifth. Wow, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, after that, I'll give you the... So we skip number four, because I want you to guess what number four is in a minute, but let me give you the rest of the top okay. nine. Uh, Notepad++, which is a really good editor on Windows. Yeah, and it goes way back. That does go way back. NetBeans, and talking about go way back, BB Edit. Whoa, that placed. Yeah, but that's only 11. That's 11 people. Weren't you a BB Edit fan? I still use BB Edit um, for like quick stuff. Okay. When I'm 
Yep. So like when I just need to edit something really fast, I'll fire up and BB edit instead of going. I use Vim for that. I wonder if that's number four. You are correct. Vim is nice. number four and I don't understand. I don't understand. I will never understand that. It's a cult. You got to be in it to truly understand it and then you can't leave. I think it's people It's people use Vim so that they can say that they use Vim just like they can say that they like some obscure movie that no one else has ever seen. Either. Oh, no, no, no. Because like I, I use PHP Storm as my primary IDE and I do Vim bindings. When I use VS Code, I put Vim bindings in there. You just get so used to it. You've got to have it. No, you don't have to have it. You should, every, we should we should stop using Vim. Come on, it's twenty twenty. Oh no, it's even to the point like sometimes I'll be filling out a web form in my browser and I'll hit you know like colon wq <laughs> or something like that. Doesn't work. All right, I, I can't talk to you about this. Next topic. Here we go. Um, a quick update. I've talked about this in the past couple of podcasts about the um, hashtag Drupal Cares initiative. So uh, this is just amazing, and you know this is just the feel-good story of, of the week, I think, is that the Drupal Association has raised a half a million dollars in half of the time frame that, that, it, that it set out to raise. Wow, so that's impressive. It, it was trying to raise half a million dollars in 60 days. It did it in just over 30 days. Um, big, you know, thanks obviously to uh, Dries and Vanessa who matched the first 100,000 and then a group of Drupal agencies, I believe, who matched the second 100,000. So that, you know, that accounted for 300,000 right there. Um, then an additional $200,000 uh, on top of that. I know that um, you know, I've definitely stepped up my, my uh, donations. Um, you know, because when, when you get to start thinking about it is, you know, my income is directly tied to it. So, yeah. you know, I should, you know, if I can afford it and if anybody can afford it, you know, maybe like an hour, donate an hour a month of your time, whatever you make in an hour, donate that back to the Drupal Association. If everybody did that, the Drupal Association would have more money than they knew what to do with. Well, and they changed how you could do like donations around this, right? Because if I remember before, it was more like an annual membership, but they've made it so you could do like one-off donations and some yep. of those things, right? It's very flexible. And even like the individual memberships, there's different different price ranges. Um, it's incredibly flexible and just, you know, it's amazing. You know, half a million dollars in 60 days. That's uh, in, in 30 days. And just to recap, um, I know Dries wrote a blog post about this. Basically, this 500K is what the association is short because there is no DrupalCon this year? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a shortfall. What exactly that shortfall is, nobody knows yet because, you know, Minneapolis basically is canceled and its place is DrupalCon Global. And obviously, the expenses for a virtual event are a lot less, but the cost to attend is also a lot less. So I don't think anyone's really going to know what the overall, you know, budgetary impact of this is to the Drupal Association until, you know, sometime after DrupalCon Global. Yeah. And I mean, the uh, the Drupal Association does more than just DrupalCon. Uh, so this money's going to go to good places no matter what. They have a significant staff, a lot of engineering staff to keep Drupal.org up and running. I mean, all that great, you know, that great new stuff, that GitLab uh, integration that we've seen in the past year, for the most part, you know, the bulk of that is done by DA staff. So if we want to keep pushing that forward, um, you know, we need money to keep those people employed. So thanks to everyone who donated. Yeah, all 2,000 
over 2,000 individual donor donors in the past 30 days. Crazy. Nice. Which is, you know, as as this blog post says, less than a quarter percent of site visitors. So imagine if we just got that up to a few percentage points. For just a few pennies a day. Yep. For t- <laughs> All right, um, I'm going to do like a little selfish uh, story the next one. As a member of the community working group, we are hosting a well-being hour. Um, so recently we expanded the community working group, um, the, the, the community health side of things, which is not the conflict resolution side. That has, you know, that membership hasn't, hasn't changed, but we're, we're adding members to the CWG to help us with more proactive uh, things. Um, and one of the people we added who are super psyched. This person just kind of fell in our lap and she's awesome. Her name is Dr. Michelle Drapkin. She is a clinical psychologist and behavioral scientist. And she is she has joined the CWG as a subject matter expert. So there are Kate, there are times when we need to talk to someone who understands mental health issues, and she is now our go-to person. Well, one of the other things she does is she has been recently been providing workshops to organizations on, you know, self-care and, you know, um, just general keeping a positive mental attitude, attitude, PMA, PMA. Thank you. During all of this COVID-19 craziness going on. So she actually volunteered. She came to us and said, Hey, would you like me to provide this um, workshop for your community? To which, of course, we said, uh, no, duh, which that's going back to like me in high school saying, no, duh. For sure. For sure. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah. So, May 22nd, uh, it's going to be virtual. It is 1500 UTC, 11 a.m. Eastern U.S., 8 a.m., a little early Pacific time U.S., um, a one-hour well-being hour with Dr. Drapkin. Um, you can sign up. There's a web form to sign up. And I will have the link in the show notes if you want to sign up. You do have to sign up in order to attend. Um, the only way to get the link to the webinar is if you sign up through our Google form. So I th- I'm sure if you just go, you know, if you Google community working group well-being, it'll probably show up on the first page somewhere. I assume. I don't know. Otherwise, just come to the podcast notes and click the link and, uh, and join us. should be interesting. It's pretty neat. And, and these times, I think we need it more than ever. Yeah, it kind of um, it worked out nicely that we finally got our, our 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 ducks in a row with expanding the CWG and these proactive programs, and you know now it seems like we really need them. So you know, kind of uh, a, a nice coincidence there. All right, let's talk about some modules. So we used to in the old days, back when we were podcasting with Smoke Signals, uh, I think we'd each have like one pick of the week, right? And we'd go. Um, yeah, the Ryan would always cheat and then choose two. Or like one wouldn't be, and it would be like, whoa, hold on, modules. Yeah, while I'm talking about this one, you know, yeah, he did. But so this time you and I have three each. Yes. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll move through these. And let's start with one of yours. Um, something I use all the time and I love, uh, the config split module. So yes. let's talk about that. Yep. So the config split module in Drupal 8, you have configuration and you export it and it dumps out a bunch of files that have the various configuration for your you know, core install, your various modules, anything that's pretty much not content kind of goes in those config files. But config split or what this module brings to the table is you can actually split it out. So you have your main configuration, but you can set up 
uh, almost different subdirectories to hold, say, like a production split. So you could be like, you know what? I don't need uh, advanced aggregate module on all the time, but on production, I want that one on. So you can move out your configuration from the general configuration and make it so it just happens in prod. At my work, um, we used to have this like crazy in Drupal 7 settings.php that was like hundreds of lines long to say, okay, if it's this environment, we're going to set this. If it's this environment, we're going to delete this. We don't have to do that anymore. We can use config split to kind of break that out. So we just set what our environment is and this module takes care of loading the right configuration for us. Yeah, I, I love it. I use it on, on almost every set I build. And I normally have at the very least a local split for stuff like Devel and stage file proxy and stuff like yeah. that, um, as well as a production split. And the production split is normally for like SMTP settings for production. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm at a loss for what else I've put in there for other sites, but I know that that's one that I normally end up putting in there. So it's, it, it's, I mean, it's fairly easy to set up, but the, I think the part where it gets a little bit tricky and it, you know, it, it's almost like an experience thing is like, where do you put everything? So yeah. That's always, and that's the thing that kind of got me for a while until I, until I figured everything out. So, so I'm going to tell you what I do, Andrew, and you tell me if, if, if you do okay. the same or something different. So I actually, each split configuration, like the configuration of each split, I okay. put in the main config. So that I always have access to what is the config configuration configuration of each split, and then yes. I have a directory in, the, in you know for each um, each split a local a dev and a production let's say, mm-hmm. um, and then and this is the, this is the thing that kind of unlocked this for me. You can do that, and then in your settings.php, the only thing I have that's per environment, I basically says I basically have you know in pseudocode if local then enable this split and disable these other two splits. Yes. If on dev, enable these two and disable that one. And then if you're on production, enable this one and disable those other two. Do you, it sounds like you're, you do the same thing. Exactly. We have the, the main config and then basically overrides for the different environments. And we're, we're containerized, but our containers set an environmental variable of which environment it is. And then we just have that basic switch statement to say, you're in this environment. Okay. Uh, enable prod, disable these other config splits. Yeah. I feel like I, I learned that not by like reading a blog post or seeing a presentation, but mostly trial and error and then yeah. also working with other people. Yeah. I learned it from other people. <laughs> so I feel like there's almost like a documentation or a presentation gap on how to be, on how to get it set up in a way that really works well. Cause I know before I kind of figured out all these bumps and, and everything, it was always a pain. And every now and then you, you know, something didn't work right and you'd have to like psych circle back and reset everything. But once I stumbled upon this method, it seems really, really stable. Yeah, and it, it, you don't end up shooting yourself in the foot or having to do CIMs too often for things being messed up. But they have added some videos, and those were helpful. But I think it's one of those modules right now that's just so complex. Until you get some experience and, well, shoot yourself in the foot a couple of times, you won't truly see the light of this setup. I feel like there's a really good opportunity for a Drupal presentation for meetups or or camps or whatever on getting this set up. Because once you get it set up, it's, it's awesome. 
Well, and it's one of those things that, you know, if I wasn't doing this for like a work site and, you know, maybe I was a hobbyist or, you know, someone who's semi-pro on it, I might not set this or initially might not set this module up, but it's one of those things that like, you know what, just go through, set it up because you should at least have a development and a prod environment at a minimum. It will still help you. Go ahead, take that small hit, learn it, set it up. Yep. So along the same lines, and um, I'm going to go over to my one of my picks of the week is config read only, which um, I love. And I call this when I teach uh, configuration to my students, I call this like the training wheels for the configuration system. Because what config read only lets you do is lock down configuration in a particular environment. So as an example, you can lock down configuration um, in the production environment so that no one can go into production and enable a module or change a view. Whoa. So on the admin side, it can actually lock things out. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you try to go to like, like even change the site name, um, there's a little message at the top saying config read only, you know, is, is locked. And that's even nice for security. Oh yeah. And then the submit, you know, or the save configuration button is grayed out. So it, the the way I talk about this module with my students is it, it enforces the process. Right, because the, the yeah. right process should be change configuration on local, test, commit, pull into dev, test, everything looks good, pull it into uh, production, import config, and be done. Yeah, no cheating. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no shortcuts. And if so, if you are if you're new to using the Drupal eight configuration system, um, this is rather than jumping into the deep end, this is basically allows you to kind of wade in rather still rather quickly but it protects you against yourself and potentially other developers it basically just locks down and enforces the process i don't know even if even if you're an experienced developer everyone's tempted to change something on prod be like i'll just you know try this out let's see if this works this would stop that well i mean and you have to again you have to tweak it for your site i mean because there's a lot of things that it locks down that you may not want locked down like block placement right block config so so there is a way to whitelist um, configurations with wildcards so that config uh, read-only does not lock them down. Um, that's a slippery slope because, <laughs> you know, once people know that you can whitelist stuff and suddenly everything is going to be whitelisted. But um, I, I'm one, uh, one of the bigger sites that I use it on, we have whitelisted block config, um, some menu stuff. And the other one, which is really annoying, which you know is perfectly reasonable to to whitelist, is um, uh, panels, panel variants. Oh yeah, you know people need to put together landing pages, so we have to kind of you know whitelist that so they can submit that. It's kind of the whole point of panels. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's a great little module. So, all right, let's move away from config. Here is uh, your next pick is interesting because it's part of the devel module. I've heard of it. I'm. I don't think I've ever actually used it. So tell us about uh, the web profiler. Yeah, it doesn't get uh, much, uh, I don't know, publicity. It's just got like a bullet point even on the Devel modules uh, page. But the web profiler is like a little footer that JavaScript puts in there. It goes across the bottom. You can collapse it, but it gives you all the stats for the things you've enabled. Um, so it can tell you, you know, this many queries, they took this long, the page took this long to download. Um, you can even add like things about your user to swap out things. So it's just like a handy dandy toolbar that drops in there in 
like remember Drupal seven, like when you used to do the uh, DB queries and it would list them all. Like a standard yeah. page would become like it would almost freeze your computer while it's trying to load all those queries. This kind of gets rid of that because it'll be like you know you ran two hundred queries on this page. You can click on it and then it'll bring you to a listing of those queries. So it's just kind of a nice UI addition to something we've all used before. So it wasn't like in previous versions, I guess maybe Drupal 7 could have been Drupal 6. There was like a block, a develop block that you could place with all that info. Yeah, there was. This is like, um, it's grown up a little. Ah, that's interesting. I might actually try that one out. And just a shout out to the develop module for being awesome. All right. So let me go. I don't have one that's similar to that, um, but I will go to another one that I feel some people know about and some people don't know about. Um, it's like there's no there's no gray area on this one, um, and that is the uh, real time SEO for Drupal. That's the name as it appears on the on the Drupal project page. But the machine name is Yoast, uh, Y O A S T underscore SEO Yoast SEO. Like toast with a Y. Exactly. Yeah. And this is actually, I believe, this got its start in the WordPress community because um, it's a it's a um, it's a whole other open source project called Yoast SEO. And what it does is it does real-time analysis of your content for SEO purposes. So, you know, it, it's basically a, a widget that you could, um, you enable it. And then as your authors are filling out a, you know, like an article node, um, Yoast will in real time, you know, provide feedback. Like, you know what, for best SEO, you don't have an image. You should add an image. Um, one of the things that you can do is you can uh, provide a focus keyword, which is basically the, the one word that describes what your article is about. And then based on that focus keyword, Yoast would be like, hmm, you didn't actually mention the focus keyword in the first, you know, 300 characters. You should probably mention it earlier in your post. Um, it, it, you know, it gives it like a readability score based on the length of sentences and the length of words and things oh, nice. like that. Um, um, you know, there's, I don't even know, maybe a dozen different categories that it kind of gives you. It's like a stoplight, red, yellow, or green. I'm looking at a screenshot. It actually seems like it's focused on content more. Cause when I hear SEO, I always worry about snake oil, but this seems like just stuff you should be doing for your content. It, it's for authors. Awesome. It's definitely for authors. And it provides, um, the other really nice thing it does that is sometimes hard to um, communicate with authors or, or, or even provide a, a good interface for authors is it displays kind of that social media snippet that will be used for this content, you know, oh, nice. from like, you know, from meta tags. So, and that's something that more and more people um, are, are, are familiar with and authors, you know, if you're authoring something on the web, you should absolutely be familiar with it. Like, what does this look like when someone shares this URL on Twitter or Facebook or something? That's actually really hard to test manually. Uh, some of the sites have it, but if you're like working on a development site that isn't public, that's really hard to test. Right, right. So, and it, I mean, it's a, it's just a really solid module. You can, there's some tweaks you can do to it. Um, I actually think if you install it with the default values, it, it's a pretty good experience, but I'm also aware that it's a pretty deep well and you can really, you could really tweak it if you want and, 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 and you know, and, and get into it if you want. Um, works well with meta tag module, obviously, since a lot of this stuff is related to, 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 you know, open graph tags and stuff like that. I like it. Yep. 
All right, so your last one is one I've never used and don't know anything about, scheduled transitions. Yeah, so you might be familiar kind of with the class of this module. Basically, you have a node or entity that's not published and you want to say publish it tomorrow at midnight. Sure, you could stay up and you know hit that publish button or you could schedule it to be published. Um, so that's what this module does in a nutshell. Um, the thing that I liked about it was uh, it, it integrates nicely with Drupal 8. I don't have to install like 15 other modules. Um, and its user interface is pretty clean. And unlike uh, some of the older ones, maybe in the Drupal 7 world, you can actually do this on like a revision by revision basis. And it will work for any entity type, which is kind of super helpful. So the module that I'm familiar with that, that sounds similar to this is the scheduler module. Yes. Um, so would you like what would what would the difference the main difference be between that and this? I um, user interface, okay. and then the flexibility of the revisions. You don't just have to take the top revision and publish that. You can kind of choose any one and put it up there. So is it a hundred percent based on time? Like you schedule a time for the future that this transition happens, and so that's question one. Or can it can it be based on some other rule? Date and time only. Date and time only, and then it only affects the status, published or unpublished, right? Yes. Okay, cool. And yeah, the screenshots do make it look quite clean. And I see the screenshots do, you know, just like you said, um, uh, you know, by revision. So that's pretty cool. All right. So scheduled transitions, and that does have a, oh, look at that. It has a, you know, official release, 8.x1.1. And it also has a new, um, oh my gosh, what's the phrase for uh, the new version? Oh, the versioning, um, semantic versioning? It does, yes, it has a new semantic version 2.0.0 for Drupal 9. Yeah, I was like, where's the, the Drupal number in front of that? I'm like, oh, is this one of them? Yeah, it's going to be, you know, in a couple of years, we're going to like look at modules that still say 8.x or 9.x dash whatever and be like, Pfft. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Scheduled transitions. Um, and my last one is one that I, for some reason, I thought this existed in core until I went and tried to do it. Um, and it's a module called Block Exclude Pages. So imagine this, if you will. Um, you're on a block configuration page, and you want to you want to configure your block to be available on all pages within, say, the the about path, right? So okay, so like slash about. Yep, yeah, slash about, and as well as slash about slash star. Okay. Right. So any any path on your site that begins with about, you want this this block to, to appear. But what happens if there's one page that's has an about path that you don't want the block to appear? So like about our company, we do want the block to show there, but not on the standard about page or about our zoo animals. Yes. Yeah. I think yeah, you want it to appear on about everything about slash anything except for about slash zoo animal. Okay. So I thought, and maybe I'm maybe I'm right on this, like in the past, like Drupal 6, Drupal 7, that you could use, and again, I could be completely making this up, but I thought you could put a caret as a negation. Yeah, I remember that, at least in the six days. Although when it got complex, I remember having to write custom hooks to make it show on certain pages and not others. Right. So, some, so I had a client ask me to do that. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure I can just put a caret there, and I tested it, and it didn't work. Then I started digging. And I realized, nope, that's not a thing. And which point I 
you know, chalk that up to my old age and started looking for modules. And I found this block exclude pages, which it does exactly what we're talking about. Instead of a carrot, it uses a bang, an exclamation point. But you can do exactly what we're talking about. Um, there's no extra interface. It's still in that block visibility settings in the listed pages, but you can just do a negation with, you know, exclamation point slash about slash zoo animals. And I love, I love modules like this that are just super focused, do one thing yep. and do it well. Yeah. And it's not heavy or anything. I like that. And I just looked on a Drupal 7 site. Uh, yeah, it's not there. So Drupal 6, maybe? I don't have any of those lying around. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so kudos to the maintainer. This also has a, um, a I forgot the phrase already. Oh my gosh. The three. Semantic the, versioning. Holy cow. It's Friday afternoon in my defense. Yeah. It's Friday afternoon. And as soon as I'm done here, I got a couple emails to respond to that I'm going for a bike ride. So my I'm half checked out already. Today. It's National Ride Your Bike to Work Day. The day we're recording, yes. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm I'm at work and I'm gonna ride my bike from work away and then back to work because I keep my bike at my office. Excellent. So in a way I will be riding to work, but I have to ride away from work first until I turn around and come back. It's kind of windy today, so half of that's gonna be interesting. Yeah, and I ride along this is gonna sound like I'm well, I am incredibly lucky, but where I ride it's along uh, the lagoon here on the coast of Florida. Fancy. So extra windy. Yeah. (laughs) And it's one of those things where like, I'm not even sure, but I will check the wind direction before I leave because I hate riding uh, with the wind on the way out. Yeah. Because you're against on the way back. Yeah. I want to get the hard part over with in the first half. No, ride with the wind out and then just take an Uber back. (laughs) No, <laughs> no, I'm very lucky where I can in either I can go north or south and ride along the lagoon for I don't even know how many, miles and miles. You're a big bike rider. A quick weird bike thing though. Yeah, I like riding the bike. It's really weird when you're riding the exact same speed as the wind with you, and it's like you're in a bubble and nothing's moving, even though you're doing like 17 to 20 something miles an hour. And, like and there's no wind. Yeah, and it's quiet. Yeah. But you're, you do road bikes, right? Yeah. 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 So I've got like, I have a, it's, it's a mountain bike, but I put, I didn't put like skinny tires on it, but I put slick tires on it. So mm-hmm. it's, um, and there's no, like I took, there's no suspension on it. So it's stiff, but it's still a mountain bike. Yeah. You, you can go in the grass and stuff and not uh, eat it. Yeah. I think um, I was talking to the, my, my bike shop guy and uh, because I'm thinking about buying a new bike at some point. Um, have you heard of these gravel bikes? No. So it's somewhere between, like they have hybrids, right? They have hybrid mountain bikes, which are somewhere between, you know, a mountain bike and, and a road bike. Yeah. My second bike's a hybrid. But there's also these thing called gravel bikes, which as I was talking to my bike shop guy and this turning to like the biking podcast, but just bear with me for a second. It won't come back to Drupal. So if you're waiting for it to come back to Drupal, I have no <laughs> way to connect this back to, to Drupal. So um, it just got me thinking about it. So um, for the type of riding that I do, which is 90% on the road, and then every now and then I put the bike rack on the back of the Jeep, throw the bike up and go ride. No, here in Florida, there's no mountains, clearly. Yeah, there's no. no mountain biking. What we have is we have off-road biking, which is a lot of sand and um, kind of hard pack trails and very little elevation gain. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to do that with a road bike. 
but you don't need a freaking mountain bike for it either. You don't need all the suspension. You, you, you know, the more stiffness you have, the, the more efficient your bike's going to be. So mm-hmm. um, apparently gravel bikes are the way to go in Florida for that type of, you know, conditions. So they're stiff like a road bike, but can still handle trails? Yeah, they're not. I mean, they don't look super mountain bikey, but they also don't, they're, they're more sleek like a road bike, but they're not completely road bikey either. either. Nice. I'm going to have to pretend we haven't had this conversation. I don't need another bike. No problem. You, you bike a lot though, right? Or you used to at least. I used to. I've actually been getting back into it. I injured myself running. So I've been getting back into bike riding. Oh, all right. Good deal. All right. Well, I think we're done, right? Uh, did we cover yeah, it's all of them. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention um, and I wanted to ask you about. Um, so I have noticed, and I'm sure anybody else who is paying attention to the Drupal community, that I believe almost every single Drupal event that's planned for this year has announced that they're going virtual. And the one that surprised me the most, and I think they only, it only surprised me because they announced so like recently, is that Bad Camp, which is, I think, October, is mm-hmm. going to be virtual as well. So Asheville, which is a summer event, which is an amazing event, is going virtual. Um, Bad Camp, of course, DrupalCon Global. Uh, Drupal Camp Atlanta just announced it, and that's also a fall. Um, yeah, a fall camp. I I can't think of any. I think GovCon was still on the fence. I don't think GovCon has announced one way or the other. That's another. Hmm, that would be an interesting one. Yeah, and that's actually held at the National Institute of Health, so I can't imagine that anything's happening there until until get that full green light. Uh, but have you heard of any events in 2020 that aren't going virtual? No, I haven't actually. I was just checking uh, DrupalCal um, to see. It Which has been really... updated. The new DrupalCal is fantastic and it has a game. There's a game? We should totally talk about that. Yeah, it's like a card matching game, you know, where you have to find like all the cards are face down and you have to find pairs. Oh, nice. I haven't even There's seen that. There's a card that. matching game with Drupal event logos. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. I got sucked in. <laughs> I just like the fact that their cookie thing says they eat cookies and they crossed out eat. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah, Drupacal is it .org? I always uh, Drupacal.com. Drupacal.com. And oh wait, where is? Oh no no, Drupacal. Okay, I'm wrong. It's not Drupacal. It's a different site. Oh okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, what is it? Now I gotta find it. Uh. Well, while you're looking, um, with the virtual conferences though, one of my coworkers. Um, he's actually been doing the, like the conference circuit virtually. He's like, this is great. I don't have to fly to London. I don't have to fly to this city. I don't have to fly anywhere. I can just do it from my house. He goes, I'm hitting up more of these because it is virtual. And for the most part, are they, are they free ones that he's attending or are they paid events? Free or low cost. Free or low cost. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see, uh, how DrupalCon Global goes. You know, it's 250 bucks, so it's not a, you know, not a no-brainer. Yeah. But when a lot of other Drupal events are free online, like, how is the DA going to provide $250 worth of value? I think a lot of people, you know, probably have that question. I don't really have an answer. I'm, I'm curious as well. That's not going to stop me from, from going. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm definitely going to pay the 250 and, and go. Yeah. I've been thinking about it because I haven't been to one in ages because I got sick at one. 
You, okay, let's be honest about this. You are you're the originator of the Drupal flu. Drupal flu, pretty much. Oh, that you was awful. Always, yeah, you appear to be patient zero in all of these. That's why I don't go. I'm trying to save the uh, the community. Yeah, I would not be surprised if it came out that you started coronavirus that you eat bats or something. Could be. Okay, so I found it. It is druplicon.org. How do you spell that? Drup, D-R-U-P-L-I-C-O-N.org. Okay. And so it has um, it has events, but it also has the memory game. Ooh, I see it up in the menu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it's, I believe it's past events as well. So, because like the South Florida um, uh, Drupal event, I believe is in there. Oh, that would be fun. It's not all past events, but it's, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a completely slippy map and you can zoom in and out. It's not a calendar like Drupal. This is not supposed to be a replacement of Drupal. Uh, Drupal is still, you know, the, the, the source to go for, um, for upcoming Drupal events. This is fun. This is the memory game. Um, and you can play with, um, there's easy, medium, hard, or expert. Um, and that just dictates how many cards they put face down in front of you and how much time you're willing to spend. Does it do any like Mario, Mario party tricks where it like rotates or anything? Not that I know of. Okay. I would love to know if there's any Easter eggs though. Some, someone wants to find that, but there you go. Druplicon.org. And I won't, I'm not even going to say how long Andrew and I searched for this. Um, that was all edited out. It's the beauty of podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. It was a 10 minute podcast, right? Yep. <laughs> exactly. All right, Mr. Riley, always great to talk to you. Yep, definitely. We'll have to do this again. Go wash your hands and wash your kids' hands and your wife's hands and put a face mask on and don't touch anybody. Okay. Done and done. Done and done. I, I'm with you. All right. Uh, cool. I'll, we'll talk to you again. Great. Thank you. Before we hop into the interview with Mr. Ryan Price, let's talk about DrupalCon Global. Don't forget to register for DrupalCon Global. Coming up July 14th through 17th, the first ever totally online DrupalCon. Check it out and register today at DrupalCon.org. As promised, or maybe as threatened, Ryan Price is back on the podcast with me. Hey, Ryan, good to have you back. Good, good to be here. And uh, it is a rainy, rainy morning here in Portland. Not that that really surprises anybody who ever went to DrupalCon Portland or DrupalCon Seattle. It's the first time we've had rain in a couple of weeks, actually. Yeah, we've been, uh, it's a rainy morning here in Central Florida as well, and um We've been needing rain for a while, and in the past week it's rained a couple of times, so this is actually pretty welcome. Um, it kind of sucks it's on a Saturday because I'd rather be out, you know. I usually take the dog for a nice long walk and, and play, you know, take her to the dog park and stuff. And for the record, um, I, we have a, a private dog park here at the uh, this little community where we're living, so it's not, mm-hmm. it's not like there's any public dog parks open that I'm I'm not breaking any stay at home orders taking my dog to the dog park. Mr. Pennybanks over here. I, it's uh, we are in a temporary apartment home. Yes, indeed. So I don't know if it's Mr. Pennybanks or not. It's uh, yeah. Anyway, um, that's uh, for another time. So last time you were on. 
we talked about a bunch of things, and I kind of teased the fact that you have been chomping at the bit to talk about trunk-based development. And I admittedly at the time said, I don't know anything about it other than um, what you briefly mentioned to me. And I wanted to do some research on it before we did the podcast. And you said, no, not allowed. <laughs> you, you should go, you, you can't, you can go into this subject cold because it, uh, like I wouldn't take, I wouldn't take a brand new person and try to tell them why trunk based is better than something else. If they were brand new, I would just say, this is the way we do stuff. Uh, but for somebody who's been in the right. development world for a long time, um, such as myself or yourself, then I would have to say, okay, well, you know this, unlearn this and learn this other way. That's what I'm going to tell you. That's, that's what the expectation is for the rest of this episode. I'm in your hands. Take me on a journey into trunk-based development. <laughs> what is it? Let's start with that. Define it. What are we even talking about? Yes. So, so the, the really, really basic idea is you will have a main branch of your repository. Let's say it's a Git repository that is releasable to the public, right? And whenever you check something into that, rep that repository, that branch, it's ready to go. That's the simplest way that I can explain this to you. And, and maybe if you are out there in the world, you're like, well, that's what we always do. You may not actually be doing trunk-based development, but if you don't do this one thing, you're not doing trunk-based development. That's that's the point, right? All right, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate or maybe I'll be the, uh, um, I'll be our listeners. I, I don't know what you're talking about yet. I'm not seeing what you're. Right, no, it's like, it sounds too simple, yes, right? that's what we always do. Exactly. Like Sounds I, too like, simple. What's the big deal? Okay. So, so, so I, I, my, my sort of lead into this is like, you know, there's, there's certain things that you sort of learn when you're learning to use version control, right? One of those things is like how you, you know, sort of like add stuff to um, a commit and then you have to write like these commit messages and you know, eventually get to the point where like, if there's more than one person working on your project, you have to start working in branches because, you know, if everybody starts like working on stuff, eventually you're going to get to the point where you have conflicts or like, you know, whatever. So, so branching is just a part of working on version control. Right. And then you have to think about like, well, what do, do I have to name my branch something special so that other people know what I'm working on right now and blah, 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 blah. What trunk trunk based development sort of takes all of the things that you could possibly do with a version control system, and it says like, if you do it this way, it allows you to scale this up to huge, 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 huge numbers of people all working on a single repository, and not very often, if ever, will anyone ever step on each other's toes. So, and I'm going into this cold. I have not. You know, you, you you put some links in our notes, which I have not read. <laughs> yeah. So is this trunk-based development like a an alternative to something like Git flow? You could you can use them concurrently. I mean like Git flow is a way of naming your branches and, and your features and like saying like this is a bug fix branch and this is a feature branch and this is a hot yeah. fix and what the trunk base doesn't really care whether you do that or not. 
if you say like, well, what is this trunk based? Who does this trunk based thing? Google, this is a, for instance, all of the code at Google on every Google product is all actually stored in a single repository. And I mean like everything, Gmail and Google Maps and Google Docs and Google Search and all of their stuff is all actually in one repository. Now this is an extreme example, but this is an example, right? And anytime that they release something to the world, it is released off of the master branch. So there is a single point that says, this is the latest stuff that's available. There are always exceptions, right? So let's just go with it for a second. Um, same thing with like Facebook. Facebook is a really giant application, but everybody works in a single repository at Facebook. And the way that people work on this single repository, um, depending on uh, blah, 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 blah. All right. There's lots of details. We don't really have to worry about the, all the exact details about how Google does it or how Facebook does it. But if, if we're scaling it down to now, like something that you or I might do, we have our main repository and then I will hit on the GitHub or on GitLab or wherever I'm going to do it, Bitbucket, I will hit the fork button, right? And so now I will get a copy of that repository that's my copy of that repository. And I will sit there and work in my copy. And then when I get something that, you know, adds a new feature to the increment I'm working on right now, I will create a pull request for that to be merged into the main repository into the master branch. And the goal of this is that whatever that feature branch that I'm working on should be, it should be around for as little time as possible. So right before I start working on something, I'll get all the latest stuff. I'll sync it up with my fork. I do a little bit of work. And the goal here is similar to like when you check in stuff to get, you want to check in stuff often so that you can sort of rewind back through time and see, you know, what you've been working on. Now you're talking about on a slightly bigger level, my feature branch should also live for as short a time as possible. So you can check in just a little bit of something that works instead of waiting like several days or a week or several weeks to check stuff in. I understand all this so far. I'm following you. That's a better way of saying it. I'm, I'm still struggling with what's the point? Like, what is this getting us? Like, what's the point? Like, what is, what is trunk-based development going to get me that I don't already have? Maybe let me ask it that way because that's what I don't know yet. So, or are you, are, are we not there yet? No, I mean, it like, I think the point is like, as soon as you have someone who creates a branch, they're technically like, if you think about, if you think about, you know, like all the things that you could do as you're standing in the middle of a big empty field and everyone's standing around having a conversation, you know, like that's people working together. Right. But as soon as I create a branch, I start walking away from the conversation. Right. So now I can no longer be a productive member of that conversation because I've, I've left, 
I'm gone. I'm not following the main track of the conversation anymore. And for me to come back into the conversation, now you have to catch me up, right? You have to be like, oh yeah, well, we just talked about this and this, and then this guy took his shoe and he put it on his head and then this happened. And like, it's, it's challenging, right? Because it would be really nice if I never strayed very far from the conversation so that I never really missed a lot. And, and this is a problem in, in, you know, version control based workflows, because if you think about, um, this literal, literal project that I worked on a couple of years ago, we had not just one development team, we had multiple development teams all working on the same project, but we would wait until the end of the sprint to reconcile all of our changes. And it was a giant, huge, freaking flaming mess. So let me play devil's advocate here. See, and I'm going to go back to your analogy about people standing in a field. You start working on a branch, you're walking away. And when you come back, people have to get you caught up. Isn't that, isn't the easy or the, the, the current solution for that is just to rebase or merge master into your branch often? And that gets you caught up? Like, I'm still not seeing the, like, what are we gaining? Well, okay, but but here's the other thing, right? As you walk away, you keep talking, right? So you're generating new stuff that's far away from everyone else. And when you come back, let's say that you re-architected, you know, something at the base level. So, so you're introducing completely brand new information that changes the conversation everyone's been having while you're gone. Now they have to catch up with you. Isn't that a project management issue rather than a technical issue? A lot of this is a lot of this is a people issue, right? We're not trying to solve like necessarily um, technical problems with this. There are technical problems that make it challenging, but like the point is, um, I think I think even more especially like let's let's say that you know uh, there's a group of people working on something and they want to go ahead and they want to add um let's say it's the media module from drupal 7 land i'm trying to think of like something that has multiple versions right so in the in drupal 7 there was media 2 and there was media 3 right and they worked very very differently and let's say that somebody decides well i'm going to use media 2 because it's got this module that i need and group b comes along and they're like i'm going to use media 3 because it's got this module that i need but they're really, really incompatible with each other, right? So you now have these two separate teams and each of them chose to introduce a new sort of like uh, base level, you know, entity type, but that are incompatible with each other. And the longer that they do that and they go off on those separate tracks, the harder it's going to be to reconcile all that work when they come back together. Agreed. So, so yes, it's a people problem, but the trunk-based development is basically trying to say the minute that you added that media module, you don't wait to check in that branch. You check it in right away and you start a new, a new sort of branch as it were. So you, you merge back into the master very, very, very often. You don't wait a week or two for it to be done. You merge it in right away because then as soon as group B, who was working on a different version of your underlying you know, data model comes along and tries to do their own thing, they're going to get a conflict and they're going to go like, oh, we have to reconcile this now. 
We can't wait, wait and reconcile this in two weeks. We have to figure this out today. So, so you're trying to shorten that cycle where things could break and you're trying to deal with those problems as they come up instead of waiting. Is that always practical though? Like from a business standpoint? It, it is, it is, and, and here's why, right? The ultimate goal is we need to serve the customer, right? We need to deliver the widget. We need to get people to register for the event. We need to accept the donation or whatever it is. And if you go and build a whole feature, let's, let us, let's say that your website accepts donations, okay? And along with that donation, then you can upload a picture. And that's why we needed this, this media module. And then we're going to take that picture and we're going to print it onto a piece of glass and we're going to put it in our new you know, building, whatever that happens to be. Sounds lovely. Wonderful. Um, as soon as your ability to upload those pictures is broken, now you can no longer serve that new feature, right? And we now have to wait for everyone to sit around and fix this thing. And we can't launch this feature on time because we have a conflict. So you want to reduce the complexity of those conflicts. You want to reduce the time it takes you to release that new feature. And if something happens to break, you want to be able to fix the thing that broke as fast as possible. And it all sounds simple and sounds common sense, but that's the point. All right. So this, so that that much that makes sense to me. I can see that there's definitely there could definitely be some friction if one team is trying to get something out very quickly, like a, a short term, you know, we need this now type of task. But then another developer is working on kind of like maybe the next iteration. That's a longer term task. I can see where there could be some, I'll use the word conflict here, not code conflict, but maybe code conflict, you know, issues with that. Mm-hmm. Where if the person on the longer term task is constantly merging their stuff in, they could potentially be getting in the way of the shorter term task. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so far, so good. I, I want to pivot this conversation a little bit towards something else that we kind of talked about um, when when you and I were talking about this, you know, re- recording this is going along. Somehow, there's there's this idea of feature flags or yeah, yeah, or feature flags. Being able to, yeah, let's let's. How does that relate to trunk based development? What are those? Let's start there. Like, what are we even talking about? So, so in this hypothetical company where you're doing fundraising and you're going to, you know, put out the image upload thing for the glass, right? Let's say that you also have a mobile app and there's a separate, totally separate team working on that mobile app, but they have to develop their own separate UI for um, putting out that, that picture upload feature. Does the mobile app team necessarily have to wait for you to finish your backend feature for them to develop the front-end feature? Rhetorical question, no, they don't, right? Uh, and, and furthermore, for them to push out changes to the iOS app store, they have to put it through the app approval process, which can take weeks, okay? So in that case, basically this, the, the, the front end on the mobile app for this feature needs to be finished weeks before you ever turn it on in production, right? Right. How do you do that? Um, how do you push it to the mobile app but not have people be able to use the back end, right? 
because you don't have control over that app store approval process. This is an example that I thought of that, that would work really well for trying to describe this. There are lots of other situations where this comes up, right? Um, but but this, is in, this is the example I came up with. So, so I have this thing, there's a really, really long lead time on it, and I need to have it out sitting on the mobile app, sitting on your phone, you've already downloaded it, it's ready to go, but it's turned off, right? Okay. And then on the day that this thing becomes available, the next time you open the app, the app will contact some sort of a backend service that says, hey, image upload feature is available now. Inside the application, flip this UI from off to on. Or from old to new, something like that. From old to new, right. So so one situation in a Drupal context that I did this was um, we had a, a particular block that was showing up for people and it had a certain widget in it. And if you were looking at old, then you saw the widget. And then if you were looking at new, we hid the old block and we showed you a new block, right? And the new block had the new widget in it. So that literally happened to me. We literally used feature flags to deploy it. That's a module. Is that, is that a... There, there is a Drupal module that's called feature toggle. And we'll put a link to this in the show notes that does this, but it's like a really, really, really simplified version of things you could do with feature toggles. Um, but it works. It works really well. Um, and one of the other things of why I liked feature toggle, the module, was because it also puts the feature toggles that are turned on and off right now into the drupal.settings for JavaScript. And um, on our site, we had a bunch of stuff you know, that was JavaScript applications as well as the Drupal PHP application. So the JavaScript applications could also read into drupal.settings and go, drupal.settings, is this feature flag turned on right now? Yes or no? Ah, oh, got it. Um, uh, this is like, this is like, you know, feature flagging 101 is, is this thing on or is this thing off? And there's just a really simple function call. It's, it's not really like, again, this is one of those like really common sense things. Like it's not revolutionary. People put flags in their code all the time of, you know, is this thing on, is this thing off? And in Drupal world, we have like a bunch of different ways that we could implement this, right? You don't need this module to implement feature flagging. But there just happens to be a module that's called feature toggle that can be used for this. And what it literally does, it puts an admin screen. You know, it gives you a permission. Person's allowed to change feature toggles. And you can visit that screen and you can just see a list of checkboxes with a little label next to them. So like, you know, use old version of block, use new version of block. Allow image upload feature, disallow image upload feature. So how is this related to trunk-based development, or did you trick me and you actually wanted to talk about two topics, but you you figured I'd wanted I'd only want to keep the conversation to one topic? No, no, they, they are one and the same. <laughs> so yeah, so so bring them together for me now. Because yeah. I'm not seeing where how how that's okay. So 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 the question I was asking you, right? You have this mobile app and you want to be able to turn on the feature for the mobile app when it's ready, right? So in order to do that you have to be able to put up the backend service, right? But let's say that also when you turn on the backend service, it's also going to change some text labels somewhere on your site. I don't know why, but it is, right? 
And you don't necessarily want that to happen until you're ready. You don't want it. Yeah. Until you, until the day you turn it on, you don't want it to happen. Okay. So, so here, let me just, let me. Please summarize. Ask the question here. So basically you could do this by the day it goes live, pushing another commit and deploying that. But that would require you to have a developer ready that, you know, hey, this thing is just got approved by the app store or whatever. So, well, I've got I've got a really good example. This has to happen during the keynote presentation at Conference X. Right. Okay. So it's much easier to do that through the UI than having a developer push a commit and running your deploy process. Right. We want to wait until the moment that the CEO shows that slide on the screen and not until they show that slide do we want to turn this feature on. Right. Right. So you want very precise timing and not dependent on a developer and your deployment process. Ah, uh, okay. That that's the light bulb moment for me right there. And 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 again, like this is scratching the surface of what you can do with feature flags, but this is I think this is the pitch for feature flags. Um is is you have now decoupled feature releases from deployments, right? And as soon right. as you start to think about that, then trunk-based starts to make a lot more sense. Because now, here's, here's, this, here's the flow of what you do for trunk-based. Okay, I, I get my fork up to sync with master. I create the feature flag and I check that in. So the feature flag exists. It's not wired up to anything, but it's now able to be turned on and off. Okay? Okay. And um, that that can get deployed now. It's ready to go. There's nothing. It doesn't break anything. You know, nothing hurts it. Nobody's nobody even knows it exists, but it's there, right? Next thing I do is I create the logic that says I want to be able to hide the old thing when the feature flag is on, and I can check that in, right? That doesn't that doesn't really like hurt anything else. Then I can create my new functionality behind the feature flag, and I can check that in, right? I don't have to wait to check anything in because all the time, my my increment is deployable, right? My main thing that I'm working on right now is just ready to go. It's ready to go out the door. So let me ask a question that might be an obvious question, but I just I don't know the answer to it, so it might not be so obvious. Um, in Drupal, the model we've been talking about is feature flag. Mm-hmm. Does this have to do with features? Not, not at all. Oh, okay. So this has nothing to do with features. No, no. I mean, technically, features, the module, is a way to do this. Because you can turn on and off a feature, right? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, is a feature, the feature flag module, does that, is that like an easy way of saying... Um, enable this one and disable that one with a you know with a flip of a switch. Enable this feature, Drupal feature, module feature. I guess I guess the the reason why I would say no is because a lot of features in that context require schema changes, right? Right. They require you to like create a new table, create a new content type. Enable a new block, whatever. What I'm saying is all this stuff is sitting there. It's usable, but for this feature flag. So this is trying to simplify. Like, don't, you know, 
do you have the features module? Yes. Is this, but, but in this case, both quote unquote features of the Drupal context of features would be both enabled, but one of them would be unusable and one of them would be usable. So is this just sort of like, you know, is a feature flag basically just like a bit of like a, a setting or a configuration where you, you know, you're basically just wrapping things in if statements? Yeah, exactly that. It's really, really simple. So how is it different from like a, a custom bit of config or is that literally just what it is? Yeah, I mean, in, in Drupal 7, it's just stored in the variable table. But um, uh, in, in Drupal okay. 8, let's say, you know, like let's, one one like wrinkle is in this is like there are, there are certain modules out there in Drupal 8 land that don't let you change config in production. This is an exception you would have to make. Right, you have to add it to your config ignore or... right. Because you would you want people to be able to change this right away, and I mean like, again, there's like a lot of different ways that you could do this. So you know, you can you can right. go on in, on your own path. So this is as much about like a development pattern than it is about. It's exactly it's a pattern. It's it's right. it's not necessarily a specific tool. Like I said, there's a Drupal module called Feature Toggle, but. You can just make your own module that does this. You don't need to use this module. This module doesn't even really have that many sophisticated tools for for what you can do around this. In in the more sophisticated example, all right. Sorry, well, I want to finish before I talk about more sophisticated. I want to finish the description of the the day that we launched this new image upload feature and the CEO announced it during the the keynote. What are the next steps to happen after you do that launch? Right. The launch goes out, people test it, things are working fine. Then you do another deploy to take away the old code, right? Mm. So now that stuff's not sitting around. You don't, don't have that technical debt hanging around yeah. your neck anymore. You're kind of ramping down now where you ramped up you know, to right. a point where you had both, um, both things and now you're ramping them down by taking down the old one. Yeah. And, and then the last thing you do is you do another deploy to take out those if statements, right? Because this feature is now always on and you don't need that feature flag anymore. So so just as your, your Git branches are short-lived, your feature flags, you also want to be as short-lived as makes practical sense, right? Yeah, you're just kind of cleaning up after yourself at this point. There are some situations where people will do feature flags for performance-based reasons. So like... Um, let's say that it's, you know, like the Grammys website and they're having the day that the Grammys happens, you know, there's just like massive amounts of traffic and no matter how many tests you do, there's sometimes there are just things that you, you realize later, you're like, oh, this is chewing up all of our resources. This one feature, we want to be able to turn it off. So you can strategically have these feature flags in there for things that are difficult to run or maybe things that rely on some external API. And if that external API goes down, we don't want to be dependent on it anymore. So we'll just turn that feature off for a little while. You know what I mean? So I think what, um, so I know there's a couple other links here that, that you shared with me, and now I think I understand how they fit in. So let's move on to um, the idea of and I think I can actually explain this one at this point. So let me just give it a shot and then you can fill in any gaps. Um, the idea where you want to make a feature available to a certain percentage of your users as a test, yep. but fall back to the the current you know, bit of functionality for, for the vast majority. And so that sounds like the idea is that 
this feature flag can then be flipped to let's or the, let's say that let's call it like a new feature flag can be flipped to on based on some random number generator for whatever proportion of your users that you want. Right. And so to even one, one step in between those two things is uh, in a Drupal context, we had created a, a user role that was called the beta user. And so if you were a beta user or if this flag was turned on, we would let you see the new feature, right? Okay. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. And so that's just a little, you know, it's, it's such, it's so small a piece of logic. Like this is what I mean by when I say like the feature toggle module is not very sophisticated. If it was up to me, I would probably bake that kind of functionality into the feature toggle module to make it simpler to use. But in this case, we just said in our if statement, you know, if current user's role is beta user or if, um, you know, or if feature toggle is turned on, then do this thing. Right. And if it's not, don't do it. Okay. And, and very, very last is like, we talked about schema changes. So mm -hmm. obviously when you want to do something like a schema change, let's say you want to add a new field and right. you, you want to have both things be able to work in that case, what you literally have to do is you have to, you can't, you can't um, change an existing field in this world. You have to only add new fields or add new tables or add new content types and then right. switch over to the new one when you're ready. So, so there is, in, especially in Drupal, right? Like where database yeah, yeah. changes are hard and they pretty much have to be done through the UI um, or through config files. You're going to have duplicate something for a little while. It's just, it's just a fact of life. Right. But it gains you all these other great things that we've been talking about, right? All right. So now, yes, you can do not just based on a certain role, but you can do it based on based on math, based on statistics, based on random numbers, right? So um, this is something you'll see, like if you've ever used uh, Google App, Google Apps, so like Google Docs, you know, Gmail, that kind of stuff. There's Google Google Apps for the wide world, gmail.com. And then there's Google Apps for Business, which is like my domain, you know, mail.drupaleasy.com could be a Gmail interface. But those two things have different um, code running them, right? Well, different features available and different features available and and then so so for those for those apps users for the people that are on you know mail.drupaleasy.com the administrator can turn on and off certain features but then the people up at google can also enable you to do certain things that are like beta things so they for your individual account can say you're allowed to use this feature right and somebody could go by and they could manually flip that switch or they could like put you into a special beta testing group and you could like we talked about with role based you know but then there's also this concept of well we want to do a test we want to go to like one percent of users we want to go to ten percent of users to thirty percent of users i don't know how many percent of users you want to you know treat as the test group but we don't want that test group to be flavored by the fact that we know that they're early adopters right Sometimes you do want to test things out on early adopters, but sometimes maybe you want to test things out on everybody, but you don't want to do it for literally everybody. You just want to take a sample of everybody. And so how would you do that? Well, I think we know now after the last half hour. That's a pretty <laughs> with good idea. feature flags and with random number generators, now you have this ability to have feature flags per user, right? Per 
login session. So what would literally happen is, in let's do a Drupal context again, hook login, right? The minute the Drupal user logs in, if they don't already have this cookie set or whatever it happens to be, this thing in their session set, it would go to the backend service, whatever that happens to be. And like, this could be a module, this could be an external service. And there's actually several external services, software as a service companies that do this. I don't know that I want to mention any of them off the top uh, in the audio, but we'll put some in the show notes. Um, I haven't used any of them yet, so I can't really say like, I endorse this one. I'll, I'll, I'll name I'll name two. This is weird. If you're only listening to it and you're never going to read the show notes. One is called Launch Darkly, and the other one is called Split.io. Those are not the only ones that do this, but those are two of the bigger ones. Um, and so you can go into their interface and you can say, I want to do 1% of all users. And then it will do that calculation for you. And... Um, you know, a weird thing is like, if you, if you just use a random number generator, then like random number generators are weird. Like, you know, you, you, you're pretty sure that 1% of the time it's going to give you that, that cookie or whatever it is, but because it's the random number generator, you don't really know. So what you can do is you can actually generate a, a list of users before you start to say like, okay, I know that this list of users is the length that is. 1% of all of my people or whatever it happens to be. So like, and then they'll also let you tie that into things like your analytics package. So when the person uses that feature, you can send information. Let's say it's Google analytics. You send information back to Google analytics across a custom dimension that says, and this person was using, you know, feature B, whatever that happens to be. And that could obviously, you know, if this is commerce related, that can obviously be super valuable data to see if a new feature leads to new, more sales or not. Yep, yep. And you know, in the in the DevOps world, you can also see if a new feature ran faster or slower, or if it caused more errors or fewer errors, or um, whatever it happens to be. Because like, if you start getting all these weird error messages, and then you have to start asking the question, well, was this user on the beta group or were they not on the beta group? It's like, no, you want to have that information available everywhere. You know what I mean, once you get, once you really get into this, you're going to start realizing like there's other things that you want to do. So using an external service for this kind of stuff can be nice because it kind of gives you some of the extra features without you having to deal with all of the integrations and stuff like that. All right. So let me, let's start wrapping up this conversation then a little bit. If I, as a Drupal, let me say it like this, as a Drupal developer, if I want to learn more about this and maybe see like some code samples or just anything, are there any resources available out there? I mean, the trunk-based development website is a good place to start. Um, it's it's just trunkbaseddevelopment.com. And they have a little page on there about um, feature toggles or feature flags. I think they call it on, on trunk-based development. And um, they'll, they have some like pseudocode, or I guess this is technically in Java. Um, but then in, in Drupal, the feature toggle module is really not bad. And then we talked about some specific vendors. I'm pretty sure those vendors would give you, you know, a PHP example, a JavaScript example, et cetera. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think, I think mission accomplished. I, you know, I went into this not really knowing anything about it and I, I feel that, um, I'm, I definitely understand like the advantages now. Um, 
I understand it's definitely more of like a development practice or development pattern than an actual chunk of code. Um, and I actually, and, and, you know, as you talked about, you know, being able to deploy a new feature to a percentage of your audience and have it trackable, you know, um, through Google Analytics or something, that can be extremely valuable. And, you know, we see that all the time. You, you know, I read blog posts all the time about how, you know, Google made their homepage, you know, 6% faster and that resulted in 30% more queries or, you know, something like that. Um, but it's, and I'm, start, I'm now starting to see how the ability to do that is predicated on the ability to do this type of trunk-based development and feature toggling. Yeah. And yeah, there's there's some other things like in that trunk-based development site that you can read about. Like, you know, not everybody in the Drupal world is doing CI, CD. Not everyone in the Drupal world is doing like heavily test-based development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like you can pull out of trunk-based development the parts that work for your team now. And then as you sort of like, you know, get further along, the, the more of it you adapt, the, the faster you're able to move with fewer errors and with, you know, more flexibility. And, and this works for Google. It works for Facebook. It works for Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it can work for you too. All right. Well, Mr. Price, as always, thank you very much. And if you have any additional topics in the future that I don't know about that you would like to come on and educate me on, I'm always uh, open for that as well. So uh, if you if you do like this subject um, and you you just want to hear more like in a way that that, you know, it's not necessarily like reading a technical manual. Really cool thing that you could check out is something called The Phoenix Project. It's a it's a book. It's actually a novel about a development team. An, a, an operations team that has to like support a bunch of applications and they want to um, they want to not suck at their jobs. I could go, I, we could talk a long, long time about the Phoenix project, but it, it's in my opinion is worth your time. All right. Well, cool. Let's wrap things up there then Ryan. Thanks as always. And we'll see you on a future episode. I'm sure. Cheers. It's time once again to talk about mydropwizard.com. Coming up in November of 2021, Drupal 7 will be end of life. What will you do if you have a Drupal 7 site that you haven't updated to Drupal 8 or Drupal 9 yet? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to contact mydropwizard.com and you're going to sign up for their Drupal 7 extended support plan. This will keep your Drupal 7 site secure well past the November 2021 date. Plans start at as low as $99. They will keep core and contributed modules up to date. They'll help you keep the site online. They'll answer your questions and they'll even do basic one-off maintenance tasks. So you definitely want to check them out at mydropwizard.com. All plans include 30-day money-back guarantee, 24-hour response time, and a site audit. So definitely check out our friends over at mydropwizard.com. Welcome to the Change Notice. I'm Chris Weber.
This is a recurring segment that focuses on the changes that are evolving in the Drupal code repository. Each change has its own story, why it exists, how it was made, made by hardworking developers, developers like you. Today's recording came from a moment of reflection on the things done well in the past. Time was taken to remember what was interesting and rewarding. When those experiences were distilled, they came up with two things that may or may not have had a large impact, but I thought were kind of cool. Number one, Drupal 9 Beta 3 is out. The long list of patches in the release notes include database driver handling improvements, updates to dependencies, and more code standard rules form from the Coder Modules PHP Code Sniffer rule set, which is a dev dependency for Drupal 9. These additions to Drupal's PHP linter now checks for properly named PHP classes to assist in their being auto-loaded for the service container, and checks for code comments that use the deprecated keyword that check in that document if that documentation follows the standard format. Number two, Drupal 9 release target is currently set at June 3rd. In order to give people ample time to upgrade from Drupal 8 to Drupal 9, Drupal 9 is to release on June 3rd. Symphony 3's end of life is scheduled for November 2021, and since Drupal 8 uses Dr Symphony 3 as a core dependency, it too will reach its end of life on the same date. That gives all of us, from June of 2020, till then, to make the upgrade for current projects. That upgrade process has never been easier, as we've been doing it all along the way. I, for one, am excited for the upcoming, undoubtedly uneventful, upgrade. Now, time for shoutouts. Shout out to all of you who have contributed to the Drupal Association. Thanks to your generosity and dedication, we have reached our fundraising goal. Nearly 150 businesses and organizations, along with over 2,000 individual donors and members donated to reach our goal. The Drupal Association is important for maintaining our testing apparatus for Drupal patches, for organizing and su supporting developers to attend DrupalCon, and running various sites to assist Drupal development like Drupal Jobs and promote Drupal. Shout out to Dries Boyatart, Jeff Gerling, and Gabor Holtzi, who has encouraged the community to give to the Drupal Association through inventive fundraising challenges and events. This has been the Change Notice. If you have feedback, please include it in the comments below. We can make this better next time. Bye. Hey, are you still listening? Great. Thank you, Chris Weber, Andrew Riley, Ryan Price for joining me this week. And a special Easter egg for those of you still paying attention.
check out drupaleasy.com slash composer basics. This is a new online workshop that we're going to be launching in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be doing a beta test of it really soon. After that, it will go live and you can sign up for Composer Basics. Check it out at drupaleasy.com slash composer basics. And we will see you on the next Drupal Easy podcast. See ya.